Well, hello, Antioch. Pastor Zach here. I am excited to be with you today. We are starting a new teaching series. Now, I told you this teaching series we were going to be doing was how to bless your neighbor. Uh, super excited about it, well-prepared, ready to go. Uh, but I want you to know that I made the preaching plan in May. And between then and now, uh, we have had quite a number of fires in our nation. Uh, we have had the civil unrest that has been uh, in the headlines day after day. Here in Dallas, we've had another spike of coronavirus to where there are things that were opening up, they're rolling them back. I personally thought that we'd be coming out of this by now, I was ready to gather with everyone. And so I had that in mind with the how to bless your neighbor. But as the coronavirus has spiked up and with the things that have been going on, I really came to the conviction that the how to bless your neighbor is a good word. I hope we can do it. I believe it's something that the Lord uh, would be honored with. And yet I don't believe it is the now word of the Lord for our community. As I spent time praying and seeking God, one of the things that I do when things seem so up in the air and it's very hard to tell what's going on is I look for a book of the Bible that I can latch onto, that I can dig deep in, that I can sink deep in. And, uh, as I was thinking about this time for our church, one particular book stuck out to me, the book of James. Because I believe the book of James, which is in the latter portion of the New Testament, speaks to uh, God's heart, God's counsel, God's ways to so many of the issues that we're facing today. It speaks about trials. It speaks about speech and the way that we speak to one another. It speaks about the way that we treat those that are vulnerable uh, and, and at risk in our communities. It speaks about pride and planning. It tells us, I'm getting excited. It tells us uh, that we shouldn't uh, make plans. We just say, if the Lord wills, right? And haven't we learned that in this corona time? It, is taught, it teaches us about humility and prayer, so many topics that I believe are so applicable for the things that we're facing uh, in this time, in the life of our church, in the life of our generation. And so for the next five weeks, James has five chapters, and we're going to do one chapter a week. The title of this teaching series is called Faith That Works, because so much of the book of James is about the faith that we have in Christ and the works that flow from that faith, faith that works. Today, I'm going, to te I'm going to teach on the topic of trials and trees, on trials and trees, two themes that we see as James opens up. Now, let me tell you a little bit about James as we get started. Uh, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He started out as a mocker of Jesus. He was a scoffer of Jesus, which, of course, if your brother told you that he was God, of course, you would be mocking and scoffing. I have three boys. If that happened in my house, there would definitely be words. There would probably be hands. Like, it would not go over. Well, that's how James started out. But as he watched Jesus' life and his ministry, his death, and Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, James went from a mocker and a scoffer. He converted to be a disciple and a servant of Jesus. In fact, I believe James has one of the more powerful testimonies about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus because what brother would knowingly affirm that their sibling is God and that they would follow him and do everything he said? I don't know many brothers like that. That was James' realization, seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead. He became a disciple. And he was so significant in the early church, he was known as James the Just. His character uh, was worthy of honor and respect, and people looked to him as a pillar in their community, someone to honor. Uh, they gave him the nickname of, of 
oblius, which meant the wall around the city that fortified the city and held it together. In Acts chapter 15, when the church in Jerusalem is stuck with what to do with the issues they're facing, they turn to James, who serves as the leader of that church. Paul calls him a pillar in the early church, and it's he who writes us this letter. Shortly after he writes this letter, James was martyred for his faith. He was taken up on top of the temple in Jerusalem, the same temple where, they, where the devil took Jesus to tempt him. They took James, the, the political and religious leaders of the day, took James up on the temple. And they told him, if you'll recant your faith, if you'll denounce Christ, if you'll, if you'll admit that Jesus is not Lord, you can go free. James said, I can't do that. Jesus is Lord. And with that, they pushed him off the temple. He fell down to the ground, but he wasn't dead. Uh, he was severely hurt. So they decided to finish the job by beating him and stoning him. As they beat and they stoned him, he prayed the same prayer that his brother Jesus prayed on the cross. He prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. James is the one who writes this letter to us. And James is the one who spoke these sermons to the church of Jerusalem in the first century. The church of Jerusalem in the first century was a strong church. It was a healthy church. It was a vibrant church. It was a church where the presence of God was there. It was tangible. It was realized. People were being saved, healed, delivered. Families were being restored. The poor was being cared for. The church was transforming society, and it was sending out other church planters to take the gospel to the nations. It was a strong and healthy church. And the book of James contains the sermons that James would have preached to that church, the sermons that God would have used to make them strong in their day. And I believe that God wants to use to make us strong in our day. Now, one thing that I'd like to ask you to do as we go through this, I'd like to ask you right now to get out your Bible and to get out a journal or something to write with and a pen so that you can study along with us because I want to share with you some of the the teachings within chapter 1 of the book of James, but I really want to encourage you to get in God's Word for yourself. We all need the Word of the Lord right now. And so we're going to talk about James 1 today, and then on our website and in our newsletter and on our social media, we're going to have a reading plan where we're going to read through as a community James chapter 1, Uh, over the course of the week. You might read the whole thing every day. You might pick a portion to meditate on and marinate on. You might memorize a particular verse. But I want to encourage you that we can journey together in this time where we're apart, that we could be united around God's Word, that we could look to His Word, and we could let His Word go deep within us in the coming weeks. So this week is James 1 on trials and trees, and next week is going to be James chapter Two. And each week we'll provide the reading plan so that you can journey along with us. I want to encourage you to take notes as we jump into the scriptures right now. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we are in need of your word. We're in need of your wisdom. We're in need of your leadership. Thank you that you've provided that for us here in the book of James. And I pray that you would open our hearts you would open our minds, you would fill me with the Holy Spirit to be able to teach your word appropriately, Lord, and you would give us hearts that would receive your word and let it bear fruit in our lives, 30, 60, and 100 fold, in Jesus' name. James chapter 1, he notes, verse 1, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So he identifies himself as James. He's that well-known. He just needs to be known as James. They know who he is. 
He's writing to Jewish believers who had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and he identifies himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is important. You don't want to miss that. He says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls his brother Lord, and he says, I am serving him, and I come to you today as a servant of Jesus. And it's important that you notice that because it's easy to read this book as a lot of good moral teaching about how to be a good person. But if you only see it as that, you miss the fountainhead of the wisdom that James is bringing because for him and for followers of Jesus everywhere, uh, we're not after just good morals. We believe that Jesus has come into the world has died on the cross, been resurrected from the dead to bring about a new humanity, a new creation, that all things are being made new, restoration, renewal, rebuilding of our broken world. In early June, I took my uh, family, my wife and I, and we went to Colorado uh, to get out in the wilderness. And one day I took my boys on a hike. The girls were doing something else. And so we decided to go on a hike that I looked up. It described it as family friendly. I definitely do not think it was that. It was a little scary with a two-year-old and a five-year-old navigating some of the trails that we were on. But it was called the Old Mill Trail. And evidently in that area, in the Gold rush of 1849, uh, they had built mines and they had discovered gold there. And this trail took you back to see these old mines and the the tools and the establishments around the mines. Now, I've seen mines before, but this was a different kind. This was a kind of mining that was done with water, not necessarily digging into the mountain. And what they would do is they would harness water and they would let it flow down the mountain and the power of the water would create erosion. The erosion would unearth kind of new things within the dirt and that's how they found gold was this water, this fountainhead of water flowing down, and everything that we saw there was a product of the erosion that the water brought as it flowed down. In the same way, everything that we read in the book of James from here on out for the rest of the book flows downstream from the fountainhead of Jesus Christ and the good news that Jesus is Lord. Everything flows out of that. Everything comes from that source. And it's important that we see that. So with many of the teachings within James, we can say, because of Jesus, this is how we need to live. This is how we ought to live in light of who he is and what he's done. And the first teaching, the first place that James goes in with his encouragement is about trials. Verse two, it's a very famous verse. I believe it's one of the first scriptures that I ever memorized. It says this, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, is verse two, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance or produces perseverance, your translation might say. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The first place that James start, because of Jesus, we can have a new perspective on trials. Now, friend, I think we all know that we are in a trial right now with the coronavirus. We're in a trial right now with the uh, unrest in our nation and all the divisiveness and, and trying to work to create a better place. We are in a trial. Things are hard right now. 
And that's why I think this word is so fitting for us. Apart from Jesus, when we go through trials from a materialistic standpoint, from a naturalistic standpoint, from God's not out there, I'm just kind of doing my deal, trials have no point. They have no deeper meaning. It's just atoms and chemicals coming together, and you just got to deal with it. It may stink, but it is what it is, right? That's more of a secular point of view. Uh, a religious point of view comes at trials and says one of two things. says, this is God judging us for bad things that we've done, or this is God testing us, and I hope I pass the test. I lived for a number of years in a Muslim country, and that's their thought process with trials, was this is a test that God's given me. I hope I pass. He hopes I pass. We'll see, right? And more of a, maybe a Christian religious point of view or a churchianity point of view as God's judging us for all of our sin. What we see here, though, is because of Jesus, there's a new perspective about trials, that it means something, that it's not just random, it didn't just happen, and we just got to get through it. It's not judgment from God, and it's not a test to see if we can somehow make it through. But because of Jesus, what the Word tells us right here is that we can find purpose in the pain of the trial. Now, James is clear to say here, and he says elsewhere, that God is not the author. It's not like he sent this on us to, to, to tempt us, he'll say, right? Some trials in the Bible we see are God-induced. Some are induced by Satan. Some are induced by man. It's what Dave Ramsey calls stupid tax. We do dumb things and we get ourselves in painful places. And some we just don't know because we're humans and we don't know why things are the way they are sometimes. But what James is saying here is regardless of the, the source of the trial, that's not his focus. His focus is in the trial, even in the pain, God is so good. He's such a redeemer. He's such a restorer that he can even work in the darkest night. I have a problem working in the night. If I can't see, I don't know what to do. God's not like me. God's not like you. God can work and bring about good even in the darkest night. And that's what James is saying here. He's saying that because of Jesus, we can see something in the trial that we can see, not that God caused it, but that God can bring good out of it, that there's something good that can happen in the trials that we're in. James gives us a couple good fruits that come out of trials. The first one that he says in verse three is that it, it produces perseverance. It produces endurance. It gives us uh, ability to endure and to persevere. And that perseverance then bears fruit in the area of making us mature, of making us whole, of making us complete, of making us strong. So trials, right, because of Jesus, develop perseverance within us, develop maturity within us, develop wholeness within us, develop completeness within us. And we see this in nature all the time. Uh, you might not know this, but if trees grow indoors where there's no wind, they grow weak. Trees actually need the pressure of the wind blowing against them to grow strong. It's how they build their strength. And we talk a lot about here in, in the church, in our church, about how Jesus wants to work in our lives such that we become oaks of righteousness plantings for the display of the Lord's splendor. 
right? And because God wants to make us into oaks of righteousness, we need trials to help make us strong. They build strength, right? We see that in trees. We see that in pearls. Pearls are made, these beautiful, valuable pearls. They come when an irritant works its way in a particular species of oyster. And the defense mechanism of the oyster is to secrete a fluid that ends up coating the irritant so much so that it hardens, and that's where pearls come from. Again, the irritant or the pressure, uh, the trial brings about something beautiful. And that's the way it works in the world, and that's the way it works in the life of the believer, that God is so good, he can bring good things out of trials. Now, in verse 5, James says something that we all need in trials. He talks about wisdom. And he says this, if any of you lack wisdom, which I sure hope we're all praying for wisdom right now with what to do, with what's in front of us, he says, you should ask God because God gives generously to all without finding fault, and that wisdom will be given to you. Verse six, he says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So next, in his discourse about trials, James turns to the issue of wisdom, something that we all need in trials. We need to know wisdom to know what to do. We need wisdom to keep perspective. We need wisdom to keep moving forward. And James, uh, what you need to know about him was he grew up in a Jewish community, which means his mind and his understanding and his language and his thought process was shaped by the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And there's a particular portion of the Hebrew scriptures uh, that are called the wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs. And so much of James's letter, you can tell, is shaped and style and content out of this wisdom literature. And the author of most of the wisdom literature was the great king Solomon. Solomon was known as the wisest man of his day, and he wrote these books that people identify as containing God's wisdom. And so when James begins to speak about wisdom, when a first century Jew begins to talk about wisdom, Solomon is going to come to mind. And as I read this text and read through different commentaries, I read one commentator who said, you know, in this passage of scripture, James references a lot from the life of Solomon or lessons that can be learned from the life of Solomon, this figurehead of wisdom for James that his community would have been familiar with. You see, Solomon uh, knew a lot about trials. Solomon was the son of King David. King David was the greatest king of Israel. And if you know anything about David's story, you know that he began as a humble shepherd boy who received this anointing, this calling from God to become king. But along the way, it was not smooth sailing. David was found trials at every turn. He found trials as a shepherd needing to fight lions and bears to protect the sheep. He found trials in Goliath and needing to fight the enemies of God. He found trials with King Saul, who was his family member and whom David served, but Saul wanted to kill him. 
He found trials running from Saul and who gathered around him? All of the men and women that were disappointed, upset, were in debt, uh, were angry, were bitter. That's who came around David. Trial after trial after trial after trial. When David ascends to the throne, when he becomes king, we see the wisdom that was produced in his life, the grace that was produced in his life, the character that was produced in his life, the training that was produced in his life that prepared him to be a great king came out of the long season of trials that he had been in. So for Solomon, this would be his family story. They were well acquainted with trials. And we know from reading the book of Proverbs that many Proverbs come out of a father's dialogue with a son. They come out of wisdom that David earned in trials, that David learned in trials, that God gave David through trials. And David is trying to impart this to Solomon. He's trying to get Solomon to take this in. These are words from a father that Solomon is recounting and talking about. So he's very familiar with trials. He's very familiar with the wisdom that comes out of trials. Uh, and Solomon goes on to be anointed as king also. He takes his father's crown when his father passes it. It passes on to Solomon. And God blesses him with, with a gift of wisdom. And Solomon was known as the wisest man of his day. Now, interesting fact about Solomon because of his affluence, because of his prestige, because of uh, just his, his, his status in life, he did not have to go through the same trials that David went to. In fact, much of Solomon's life was insulated from trials, what was, was removed from trials. He was able to have an easy, comfortable, well-protected life. And for a while, it looks like things are going well, but in that ease of living, in that comfort, in that affluence that he had used to insulate himself from trial, Solomon stops looking to God and trusting God and starts looking to his own wisdom and trusting himself. And he begins to make very poor decisions. He begins to, to lead his life, to run off the track, so much so that he ends up losing his crown, he ends up losing his kingdom. He ends up losing his legacy because he went off the rails along the way. When he stopped looking to God and trusting God, when he, stopped, when he started looking to himself and trusting his own wisdom, he ran himself into a ditch and it cost him his crown, it cost him his legacy, it cost him the kingdom. And what we see here. Uh, with Solomon is he didn't have the same strength of character that had come through trials that his father had. So God wanted to give him a crown. God wanted him to be a great king. Yet because Solomon didn't press into the trials, he insulated himself from them. He didn't lean in. He, he pulled back and protected himself. He didn't have the character that he was going to need to be able to sustain the calling that God had given to him, be able to sustain the kingship that God had given to him. And so in verse 9, uh, James kind of references this. He says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Now note this, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. 
since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And we see that in Solomon, right? We see that he was like that grass. The sun came out and scorched. Right now, we've been laying some, some squares of grass in my yard, and it's really important. They, they tell me that you got to keep those things watered, right, to protect them from the Texas sun scorching them. And we'll see in a couple months when our entire city has been scorched by the August Texas sun. We're familiar with that type of illustration, and what James is saying here is that when we trust in riches and when we look to ourselves, right, and look to our own way, right, we end up fading away like grass fades away under the heat of the sun. Solomon's life ended up fading away like grass under the heat of the sun, and our life will too. But one thing that trials do because of Jesus, they teach us not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in our own wisdom, not to trust in riches, not to trust in an insulated life that we can build for ourselves, but they humble us and they cause us to look to God. They cause us to trust God and they cause us to put our trust in something that is not going to wither an unshakable kingdom and God's purposes, an indestructible life. And so trials work to our advantage because they humble us. They develop perseverance within us. They mature us. They make us complete, lacking nothing. They bring humility in our lives. And then note this in verse 12. James says that blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised for him. And so James says it's not just that God works in us in the trials, but there are things that he wants to give through us as we come through the trial. If we'll persevere, if we'll lean into him, if we'll let the trial produce the godly character and strength that we need for the assignment and the thing that God wants to give to us. God has a crown for us. The crown is not just for Solomon. The crown is not just for David. God wants to give you and me a crown. And it says this crown, this symbol and sign of royalty and authority and kingship, queenship, God wants to give to us, but he wants to give to us when we have the character developed to be able to carry the crown and to do it with honor and to handle and steward the responsibility and the calling and the authority that God wants to give us. So Solomon, he didn't have that character because he hadn't been through the trials. We are going through the trials, and if we'll persevere, if we'll let it have its full work, right, there's a crown on the other side. So get this, trials are training for kings and queens. Trials are training for kings and queens. Trials are the training ground for kings and queens. There are things that God wants to develop in you and in me and in us as the people of Jesus, the best version of ourselves, being the people that, that God made us to be, the full potential. When he, when he thought us up, the full potential of who we could become, that is only going to come as we grow and go through trials. 
And as we come out on the other side, God is training us to rule and to reign for authority and dominion and to be the type of people that could use the power and authority for good, for God's purposes. Dallas Willard said that Jesus Christ is looking for men and women to whom he can entrust his power. And if you know the history of humanity, when mankind is given power, we have the saying, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely because we on our own are not good with power or authority, right? But the one who has been through trials, who has been refined in the trial, has been strengthened in the trial, becomes the type of trusted king or queen that can handle the authority and wisdom and dominion that God wants to give to us. That's really exciting to think about that. Trials are training ground for kings. Now, next, James continues on this theme of trials, and he goes into a common problem or temptation that we're all faced when we're in a trial. Verse 13, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So what's this saying? It's saying, when we get in a trial, it gets really easy to start blaming God, to start accusing God, to start getting mad at God, right? And James is pointing out, hey, the issue right here, the blame right here is not directed at God. God is trying to work this sin that is killing us He's trying to work it out of us. And trials are one of his tools to work it out of us. In fact, the language that's used here when he's talking about testing is that that they would use to uh, refine a silver, sterling silver. They use it to refine the impurities out of it. God is bringing out the best version of who we are, of who he made us to be. So they're saying, hey, when you're in the trial, I know it's hard, but don't get tempted to blame God because... So don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He reminds us of the character of God that we know because of Jesus, that God is not some abstract faith, this force of good and evil at work, just playing with our lives. Because of Jesus, we know in seeing him, we've seen God. We know that God is good. We know that God is loving. We know that God is unchanging, that in him is light. In him there is no darkness at all. There's no shadow or turning. And so James is encouraging us, hey, when you're in the trial, don't get bitter at God. Don't blame him. Let the trial have its full effect and remember that God is good and he is at work for good in you and through you, even in the midst of the trials that we're in. Uh, I read two quotes that I think are, are applicable here. One is by Will Rogers, the cowboy. And he said, there are two eras in American history. The first era was the passing of the buffalo, talking about the westward expansion. He said, the second era was the passing of the buck, blaming someone else. Another quote I read said, to err is human, to blame it on God is even more human, right? We have a tendency to blame other people and to blame God when things are hard. And James is encouraging us to say, no, press in. Be patient, endure, for God is at work for your good. He wants to bring the best out of you, not beat you down. Now, in chapter 5, James picks up the, the theme of trials again. 
At the end of verse 17, he takes it in a different direction, but he picks up the theme back in chapter 5. And I want to close our time by showing you that text because I think it adds to our understanding of what God is doing in the midst of trials. And I think it would be encouraging to you. Chapter 5, verse 7, uh, James speaking about trials again says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, waiting patiently for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm. So James is encouraging us in the trial, and he's using the illustration of a farmer waiting patiently for his crop. And he says, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. God is going to break through. He said, don't grumble against one another or you'll be judged because the judge is standing at the door. Verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count them as blessed, those that persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So James encourages us in the trial that I know it's hard. I want you to be patient. God is going to break through. And he uses the illustration of a farmer and a field. A.W. Tozer, the American pastor, uh, talked about this concept in an illustration that I remember exactly where I was when I heard it, and it stuck with me ever since, and I want to read it to you. He says this, he said, The fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of being broken up. So he talks about a field that is at rest, a field that has never been plowed, that's never been broken up, that is just insulated from trial or difficulty. He says such a field as it lies year after year becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. Then he goes on to say, but that field is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it see the miracle of growth. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of seed bursting forth, nor the beauty of ripening grain. There is fruit that that field can never know because it is afraid of the plow and of the tilling. In direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living, the protective fence has opened up to admit the plow. The plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting of the farmer and the rattle of machinery, right? Trials are not comfortable. But he just says this, the field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, broken, but its rewards come, come upon its hard labor. The seed shoots up into the daylight. It's miracle of life, curious, exploring the world above. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old, ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. He contrasts the field, friend, when we insulate ourselves from trials and we try and get out of them at all costs, we miss out on the plowing and the seeds and the growth. There's fruit that we will never know. There's strength that God wants to give us that we'll never develop into without the trials. 
And so back to the beginning of the passage, this gives us a reason to consider it pure joy. It may not feel great all the time. We may all be ready for it to be over, but we can have joy because we know there is a purpose in the trial that we're in. So I want to encourage you this week to take this passage of Scripture, James 1, verse 1 through 16, and I want to encourage you to read it and to sit with it and to let it sink deep within you. Let it be that marinade on your soul and let God speak to you and encourage you this week. Next week, we'll pick up with James chapter 2, and we'll look at what James has to say about so many more of the issues that we're all facing every day. I love you, and I will see you soon.